Hey, Greg. Hey, Helen. What's up? Um, you weren't here for this interview, so I did it by myself. Oh, yes. Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. I sat down in a room in a dark podcast recording closet with Tim Ferriss. I'm I'm really excited uh, to hear this now because, as I've mentioned to you before, I, I actually was not... I didn't know anything about Tim Ferriss until you explained who he was. And now I'm like very curious to hear all these details about him, you know? So yeah, he is a huge deal. He's got a podcast called The Tim Ferriss Show, which has uncountable numbers of subscribers. I'm sure a lot of our listeners also listen to his show. It's one of the top podcasts in the universe. And he's also the author of, I think, four, if not more, really, really successful books, which kind of take a very interesting view from left field take on the way people live in the world. He's most famous, I think, for the four-hour work week. But what I'm really excited to talk to him about and what you'll hear in this interview is us talking about his two food-oriented books, The Four-Hour Body, which is all about hacking your body using, among other things, the food that you do or don't eat. And the four-hour chef, which looks like a cookbook and sounds like a cookbook and walks like a cookbook, but is not a duck. It's actually secretly a book about how humans learn and acquire knowledge, which is totally crazy and completely up my alley. And I think you're going to love it. Wow. I love the idea of hacking your body. Hack your body sounds like a Justin Timberlake song from like 2005 or something. Uh, hack your body. I want to hack your body to the break of dawn. Hack your body tonight. All right. Well, I'm I'm like thoroughly stoked. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat um, and I can't wait to hear your chat. Welcome to yet another episode of The Eater Upsell. I'm your only host for today, Helen Rosner. Here in the studio with me is a super special guest, Timothy Ferris. Welcome to The Eater Upsell. Thanks for having me. Do you like to go by Tim? I do go by Tim or Timothy. Generally feel somewhat scolded with Timothy. Because that's the full name on your book. It's part of the reason that I segued for the first time to Tim in the, the most recent, but I, I will respond to both. <laughs> that's actually why I brought it up, I noticed. So, so Tim Ferriss is um, many things, but among other things is the author of several best-selling books, including The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, The 4-Hour Chef, and his latest book, on which his name is Tim, not Timothy. Correct. Which is called Tools of Titans, the Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. That's very alliterative. There are a lot of T's in there. There's a lot of alliteration going on. Was that intentional? It was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have fun. First thing you have to do, rule of writing books, make sure that you are doing things for yourself <laughs> to keep it interesting. So Tools of Titans is... Um, is not a food book. We'll talk about your food books, which are ostensibly the reason we have you here on the show mm -hmm. in just a second. But Tools of Titans is a book that grew out of your podcast in some ways, it did. right? It did, yeah. I, yeah. I had taken a month and set it aside to go to Paris to do a lot of eating, uh, but also to bring my mom. She had never been. And to go through all of the notes and transcripts from the podcast, about 10,000 pages of transcripts covering all of these guests from different worlds who are the best at what they do. So you have the Jamie Foxes, but you also have uh, General Stanley McChrystal, chess prodigies like Josh Waitzkin, super athletes, you name it. And I wanted to put together the notebook to end all notebooks for myself because I'm a voracious reader and note taker. So I have dozens at home. And I got about halfway through it and I realized, you know, 
this is exactly what my readers and listeners have been asking me for, so why don't I just make it a book? And uh, it is the, the, the itch that I scratched for myself that be turned into Tools of Titans. So tell us a little bit about your podcast, which I, I assume most of our listeners have heard of because it is wildly successful. But Yeah, the, the name of the show is The Tim Ferriss Show, and it has just recently crossed 100 million downloads. Or I'd say about a month and a half, two months ago, crossed 100 million downloads. It's a huge number. Yeah. So it, uh, as far as I can tell, based on the reports and so on, it's the first ostensibly business interview podcast to do so, although I do a lot more than cover business folks. And the the purpose of the show, every episode, is to dissect and deconstruct world-class performers, to tease out the, the habits, the favorite books, the routines, the rituals, the mantras they live by, et cetera, that people can immediately test. And so that's distilled here in Tools of Titans. Um, and it's also, I think, as a, an area of focus, it's very much in sync with the thrust behind your other endeavors, mm-hmm. which to me, what's what's the word that you would use to describe this i think of optimization i would say i would say optimization for sure the phrase i would probably use is the minimum effective dose which is borrowed from medicine but you're you're looking for the gold the goldilocks dose in other words too little of something you don't get the desired effect too much and you have side effects you're looking for that perfect bite-sized bullet and whether it's the four-hour work week as it relates to business, for our body as it relates to exercise and diet, or in this case, three sections, healthy, wealthy, and wise, I'm always looking for the minimum effective dose. So if I can take, say, three hours of conversation with someone and then dozens of hours I've had in conversation with them after the podcast. So only about, I'd say, 60% of this book is actually from the podcast. Every, all, all the rest is new, uh, brand new material. I want to distill it down to these little utilitarian espresso shots. So if, you, if we sit down with a cup of coffee, by the end of that cup of coffee, you've finished, say, an entire profile and have five or six things you could test. So what do you think of yourself as? What's your job description? Uh, professional dilettante, maybe. Uh, I would say human guinea pig covers it pretty well, but I've always, I've always viewed myself more as a teacher than a writer. And I, I thought for a very long time I was going to be a ninth grade teacher really? because I had a, some very important influences around ninth and 10th grade that saved me from making some very, very bad decisions. Uh, a lot of my friends growing up ended up being alcoholics, drug addicts, number of OD'd. And I felt like that was a, a critical formation period. But turns out that I am still teaching. I am teaching, but I'm just doing it vis-a-vis the books and the podcast which has been a blast uh, because it gives you the luxury in both formats to really dig into the details. Where'd you grow up? I grew up, believe it or not, as a townie in the Hamptons on Long Island, which is a weird place to grow ritzy. up. Ritzy. Well, it's ritzy if you're of the sort of Spielberg Seinfeld set, but uh, <laughs> there, there are plenty of service uh, workers, and I worked as a busboy at the Lobster Roll and places like that, uh, rat tail and all, back, wow. in the, back in the day. So that's, that's where I grew up. What was it like working in restaurants in that kind of intensely class striated environment? Oh, yeah. You you got to you got to see the best and the worst of I think human nature. So you'd run into for instance self-made people were fine generally because they had had shitty jobs before. And Billy Joel for instance would come in and uh, at the Maidstone Arms where I also bust and he would have a cup of coffee and tip 20 bucks, which to me at the time was like winning the Powerball. I mean, that was a, that was a big deal to me. What, what era are we talking about, like mid-80s? This is, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 20 uh, bucks in the mid-80s was not nothing. 20 bucks for coffee, for serving coffee, was winning the lottery for me at the time, certainly. And you, on the flip side, though, you saw the, the worst in terms of entitled, nouveau riche folks thinking they're the cat's meow, uh, just throwing tantrums and like ruining everybody's day because they wanted to put on a show about how their coffee wasn't prepared properly or whatever trivial nonsense they were obsessing over. So there was some really, really bad behavior. And there still is. <laughs> Did that change how you conduct yourself now that you're fairly successful? Uh, oh, it, I think it absolutely did. I mean, I knew what I didn't want to be, and I knew the type of person that I wanted to emulate. So in restaurants in particular, I'm very, very cognizant of that because I was, I, I cleaned, I bust. Occasionally I was thrown a bone by a, a, a server who wasn't supposed to let me serve, but they would say, hey, you know what? Big boss isn't here. Go bring the coffee to Billy Joel. Right. So that was Gavin. I remember his name. It had such a big impact on me. There you go, Gavin. Way back in the yeah. day. And uh, it, it absolutely affects how I interact with, with people in any service industry because they're often invisible in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just kind of ridiculous to me. <laughs> Why do you think it is that some people become such monsters when they become wealthy or successful? I think that... that Money is like alcohol in the sense that it just makes you more of what you already are. And if you are, <laughs> if you're, if you have kind of joy in you, but it's under wraps and you have booze, you're probably going to be a happy drunk. If you have money, you'll probably do good things with that money. If you have, uh, cursing's kosher on this show, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. So if you're an asshole, money or alcohol, Either is just going to make you a super asshole. And I think that money and success, however we define that, also shows you how people behave when they no longer feel like they have to be nice. Yeah, that's and, very true. And uh, I should say that there are within the, say, city people, as we call them, <laughs> uh, group, you have different subgroups. The, the self-made are fine. The old, old money are totally fine. They're they have nothing to prove. They're over the fact. Like right. They just drive like a used or like a 10-year-old Volvo and don't not make a, a scene. Not a McLaren that's in matte black. Like, right. right. They're, they're, not, they're not trying to flaunt the money. Um, but then there are a lot of people who go to the Hamptons to see and be seen who can't quite maybe afford the expenses they're incurring. And that's a volatile combo. Have you been back there do you still go back to I do Hampton? yeah yeah I go back and what's what's weird for me now is that I've realized a they're actually cool people in New York City <laughs> <laughs> including a lot of my very close friends so they're not all bad and uh also that I have in some ways a lot more in common with my close friends in New York City than I do with uh some of the folks that I see when I go home, even though I'm, I, I still have close friends from when I when I grew up in East Hampton, certainly. But I have a foot in either world, in a, in a sense, which is an unusual, always kind of a, a weird experience for me. Because the locals see me as maybe a city person, although I did go to school there for a long time. And then the city folks are like, wait, you're a, you're a townie? And there's like a, a little bit of like residual resentment from just being abused for so long when I worked in restaurants. Uh, so go figure. I'll sort that out. But I'll save that for my therapy lessons. <laughs> <laughs> so that time in restaurants in, in Long Island, 
shockingly, I guess, being treated like crap by asshole patrons did not make you decide to become an avid home cook immediately. <laughs> right? No, There's a no. There's a lacuna there. No, it did not. It took a long, long, long time for me to, to come around to cooking. So it's interesting to me in the, in the trajectory of your career, um, or this stage of your career, at least, as, a, as an author and a, a teacher, and you refer to yourself as a scribe and all sorts of these like wonderful sort of filtration and curatorial words, which I want to talk about a little bit more in a second. But um, this idea of finding perfection or optimization or, or a best way to do things, it was a little surprising to me. I mean, I read the four-hour work week, which is a fantastic reference. Um, and then it was a, a couple of years between work week and body. That's right. And it, I remember when, when For Our Body came out reading it and thinking that I was surprised that it took so long to apply that ethos to consumption and the body and mm -hmm. not just what we do, but the tool that we use to do things. Mm -hmm. Was it something that had always been in your mind? Because you came right out of that world. You were doing sports supplements and thinking about things like yep. nutrition and bodybuilding. Why not start with the body? Well, the, so the, the obsessive recording and note-taking and analysis and all the OCD <laughs> enriched behaviors, let's call them, that I have uh, began with competitive athletics, with wrestling specifically, because I was cutting in my final season of high school, for instance. And cutting is... Cutting weight okay. for weight classes, for weighing in and then competing. So I was cutting, and I do not recommend this to anyone, but I was cutting from 178 pounds to 152, so 26 pounds twice a week. My God and dehydrating and rehydrating and to do that without having organ failure which is why they changed the rules ultimately because people were suffering organ failure you have to understand a lot about how the human body works and potassium sparing diuretics and all of these other things the uh i, I think many of us have strong suits that we com accidentally compartmentalize so we're very good at one thing and we think it's limited to x whereas in fact we could take that and play that hand all over the place in our lives so for me I had it in the athletics. Then I took a slightly different toolkit, like 80-20 analysis and so on, applied it to business and entrepreneurship, and that was the four-hour work week. And the the intervening years between four-hour work week, four-hour work week, and four-hour body were really taking the time to connect those two. And secondly, making the conscious decision not to do the three-hour work week or the four-hour work week part two, because I knew I could always go back to it. So I wanted to take the so-called risk to do something completely outside of business productivity so that I wouldn't be pigeonholed or paint myself into a corner, which I think a lot of people do, by limiting themselves to what they perceive as safe ground. I didn't want to do that. And I knew I could always, even if 4-Hour Body flopped, uh, and 4-Hour Body, in terms of per year sales, is probably even more popular than the 4-Hour Workweek, uh, wanted to, to really step into that world. And since that was received well, then decided to see how far I could push it with the four-hour chef and all of that. But um, I think it's very common that, that and certainly in, in Tools of Titans, when you look at the most successful people, and I, I, I don't like that word very much, success and successful, but just for the sake of simplicity, the most successful people I could find in every world, they are all flawed creatures walking around with all sorts of demons and battles they're fighting that we don't know anything about with one or two strengths that they've been able to build habits around. So for me, I had just limited those one or two strengths to one or two places, not realizing they could be applied elsewhere. 
Why don't you like the word success? I don't like the word success for the same reason that I don't like uh, the word happiness in that it's, they're both used so often to have almost become meaningless. And uh, simultaneously, though, they're two primary targets for almost everyone. That is a really terrible combination. You have nebulous terms, so unclear thinking, meaning unclear goals, driving imprecisely many of our decisions. And uh, it's a, in both cases, I think it's a moving goalpost. Uh, and so I, I know a lot of people, and I've spoken with, for instance, uh, this woman named Dr. Brene Brown, who spent, I want to say, 15, 20 years studying shame and vulnerability and so on. She's one of the top five viewed TED Talks of all time, which is, a, is fascinating. Yeah, 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 she's fascinating. And uh, I asked her just because I wanted to see how she would respond. You know, who's the first person who comes to mind when you hear the word successful? And she vetoed the word immediately. She said, I've, I know so many people and so many of my patients and subjects and studies that I've conducted who are miserable precisely because they use that word and chase that word. Uh, I just effectively disavow, or I should say disallow myself from using those words whenever possible. So for our body is, broadly speaking, if you read it cover to cover, it's a book about hacking your body, right? It's yeah. a book about taking yeah. advantage of you know what you're saying the minimum necessary dose. yeah minimum effective minimum dose. effective dose and changing yourself in big ways using small things mm -hmm. and yet the book is marketed primarily as a diet book which is a very different mm -hmm. much less nuanced way of thinking mm -hmm. about what's happening inside these pages yeah i can explain that if you'd like <laughs> yes. uh, uh so the <sighs> Okay. So I think that with behavioral change, especially any type of exercise or diet related recommendation, you want as a teacher to travel the path of least resistance. And humans are, e economics is even, the study of incentives, really. And it turns out that if you look at the scientific literature or just think about it for a second using common sense, humans respond very poorly to long-term macro incentives, i.e. you can decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease by 50% 20 years from now if you do X. Right. That's totally Terrible abstract. Terrible reward. That's not going to Terrible reward. anywhere. Yeah. But if I'm able to say your ass is going to look great in jeans within two months or you're, <laughs> you're going to have six pack abs or you'll be able to, you're going to get more, you're going to have more sex and better sex as a result. Uh, these are the Trojan horses. And of course I have to deliver on those things, but that allow me to then feed in other types of instructions that do ultimately impact say fasting glucose levels, hemoglobin A1C, triglycerides, all of these things that could and will very likely have an impact on all of these different common causes of mortality, right? So the book is very, very nuanced, but my goal first and foremost with the positioning and marketing of any of these books is to just get my foot in the door with, with one benefit that is easy to sell. And then I feel like with any of my books, if I can get someone into the first 20 pages and to do one test related to say, diet and fat loss. So I did a Facebook live yesterday and a fan popped up who lost 160 pounds. Wow. Okay. That person will listen to any advice that I have most likely. And of course that's an oversimplification, 
But if I've proved that something seemingly impossible, is that possible? Now we can talk about any subject with any degree of detail or nuance, and I have a receptive ear, but I have to get my foot in the door first. So you do a different Trojan horse with 4-Hour Chef, um, mm-hmm. which is that the book is ostensibly a cookbook, and it's sold in the cookbook section of the bookstore, and it's full of recipes. But there are two things that it is, besides just being a cookbook, that adheres to the slow-carb diet that you put forward in 4-Hour Body. The first is that it, it literally is cooking school. Like, it mm-hmm. teaches you how to cook if you don't know how. But I think far more interestingly, you talked about this a little bit in the intro to the book, and it's it's threaded throughout, but it's it's very subtle. You, you talk in the intro about how you set out to write a book about how we learn and mm-hmm. how brains absorb information. And, mm-hmm. you know, the whole time I was reading 4-Hour Chef, I was thinking, well, this, this could have been 4-Hour Brain. Yeah, yeah. So why call it 4-Hour <laughs> Chef? Why pick cooking? <laughs> well, I think... <laughs> I think if if you want to confuse everyone, then you call the four hour chef and say it's a book on accelerated learning, which proved to be a little a, a little bit of a like Labrador retriever, huh? Like head tilt <laughs> collectively. Uh, but uh, I felt like cooking, since it was also it was also a skill that had defeated me many times in the past. I had tried repeatedly to learn to cook and just thrown in the towel with frustration and despair. And eventually when I figured it out for myself with a lot of help, realized that cooking is in fact, the kitchen is the perfect dojo in which to study learning because you're engaging all the senses. There are very few skills that engage all the senses. So you can do a lot of cool experiments and you can elucidate a lot of principles that apply to everything from language learning to even learning how to swim. I mean, I didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s, if you can believe it or not. That's nuts. I grew up on Long Island. But long, long story behind that. But once I had the proper instruction, which tested a bunch of assumptions, I went from zero laps in a pool to doing 40 laps per workout in about 10 days because it was all bio, It was all biomechanical. It wasn't a workout per se. It was just thinking about swimming differently. So I thought that cooking, given the senses at my disposal to discuss would be a great way to, in a visual storytelling fashion, get people excited about learning. Because it turns out that, and I've tested this before, everyone says they want to be sm- they, they want to be smarter. They want to learn accelerated learning. This is a lot of people will make that claim, but if they try to pick up a book that is generally in the abstract about accelerated learning, it will be so dry that they will put it down, no matter how excited they are when they open the book. So I needed a subject matter to wrap the principles around, and I thought cooking would be a a good choice. Why was cooking difficult for you in the time before 4-Hour Chef? Because it seems to me, and admittedly I do this for a living, but it seems to me that as long as you are willing to just follow the instructions, you can get something passable done. I think that that's generally true. But I always wanted to understand the principles behind the cheat sheet. In other words, uh, if you talk to, say, I mentioned Josh Waitzkin, the chess prodigy uh, whose life was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer. Incredible guy. And when he 
teaches, if he ever teaches chess, he very rarely touches a chessboard these days, but his first primary coach taught him chess in reverse. So rather than teaching, there's, there's, there's a point to this, I will get there. I'm with it, you. <laughs> rather that everyone starts chess typically with openers, the uh-huh. first few moves. And if you memorize a handful of openers, you will be able to beat 90 plus percent of your friends. And it's this sugar high. But in his mind, Josh's mind, it's the equivalent of stealing the answer key in the teacher's book for a given test or subject. You're not actually learning principles that apply throughout all of chess. So it's it's a very, uh, you're going to hit a ceiling very quickly. And so when he teaches or when, when he was taught by his first coach, he cleared the entire board and it was chess, I'm sorry, it was king versus king and pawn. That's it on the entire board. And you learn these macro principles. He calls it learning the macro from the micro. So you have this, these tiny pieces and you learn all these principles that then allow you to be adaptable. And so I took that lesson. He spent maybe 20 minutes with me and went to Washington Square Park and lasted like 10 times longer with these uh, speed chess hustlers than I should have. And I didn't have anything in terms of openings. It was wild just because of these principles. So my goal what I had sought with cooking was to understand the basic principles that would allow me to not only create recipes, but understand why certain things worked, certain things didn't work. And when I tried to find that, I came up short generally. And there are some really good cookbooks out there, don't get me wrong, but uh, most of the time you flip to a page and you have the sort of dish du jour. And it's like, okay, I can do this in isolation, but if you wanted me to improvise with whatever's left over at a friend's house, I'd be totally screwed. I wouldn't even know where to begin. And uh, I, what I saw and what I see in the best teachers, whether it's jujitsu, chess, Spanish, doesn't matter, is that they're able to lay out a logical progression where you start with fundamental building blocks and B is dependent on A, C is dependent on B and A, and so on, so that by the time you're building through this process and you get to the end, you have a complete repertoire for making just about anything uh, and being able to improvise. You understand the underlying architecture. Yeah, exactly. So with everything that I do, I want people first and foremost to understand the principles because then they can adapt, they can find their own tools. But if you're just given the tools uh, or the recipes for anything, cooking, uh, it doesn't programming doesn't matter. Then uh, you'll be very stiff. You won't be adaptable. So when you're writing these books, um, in particular, I'm interested in Four Hour Chef, but I think it's the case um, in all three of the Four Hour books. Do you think about who your audience is? I do. do. You know who your reader is? Who are you thinking of? Yeah. So the way I write is very simple. I write for one or two of my close friends. So That's it. Who are your close friends? Uh, well, for instance, for the four-hour work week, it was uh, there were two male friends. One had was maybe two years into an investment banking job, hated his life, but felt like he had to keep doing it to cover his now bloated lifestyle. And and the second friend had his own company and felt like he had created a monster of his own making. He was stuck in this job that he couldn't quit. In effect. For the four-hour body, it was a, a, a few friends who had very specific uh, physical problems. They were very often smart people who, for whatever reason, hadn't cracked mastery or, or control over their own bodies because they felt like it was out of their control. And so I wrote it, I wrote it for them. I was like, all right, these are smart people 
who are excellent at doing other things, but they have not, they have put certain aspects of their bodies or physical performance in the impossible bucket for a long time. How do I get them to take the same brain power they have elsewhere and apply it to something I know how to address really, really simply, actually. Uh, Four Hour Chef was written for uh, one particular friend who's always asking me about, asking me about language learning and uh, not only language learning, which has a lot of commonalities to cooking, actually. Uh, I, uh, you Believe it or not, I actually wrote my undergrad thesis about recipes as a, as a form of like code-based processing. Yeah, well, there it's, you go. I mean, yeah. it is. It's super, exactly there's a ton the of overlap. Yeah. But I wrote it for a friend who's very interested in accelerated learning, uh, but needed a context. And I wrote it for another uh, guy friend who, like me, was just like, ah, oh, like someday I'll learn how to cook. Someday I'll learn how to cook. But he had every excuse <laughs> imaginable, just as I did. And they were the same excuses. So I was like, all right, well, let me bite the bullet. And <laughs> actually put in a little labor here to try to figure it out. And uh, that is how The 4-Hour Chef came to be. With all three of those books, there is, to me at least reading it, as a woman, like it definitely feels like you're talking to an audience of men, which I think is, you know, your prerogative as the author. But I'm curious, especially with 4-Hour Chef, because of how much just like gendered baggage there is on the notion of home cooking how much Mm -hmm. you were thinking about that i I, well i was i would say that as a male i i am (laughs) i find it easiest to write as a male so i try not to pretend that i understand say the feelings or positions of people that i don't represent or um maybe don't have a ton of exposure to. I'm not talking about women specifically in this case. <laughs> but what I mean by that is I don't want to pretend like I know what it's like to have cooked, having learned from your grandmother at a really young age, like my girlfriend at the time, for instance. Like I don't know what that experience is like. But I do know what it's like to feel like an incompetent ass as a guy who's decently good at other stuff to like be in the kitchen and just ruin a meal and not know why it went sideways. Like I know that feeling. <laughs> so then if you compound that with the fact that my audience, based on polling, is about 84% male. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that I would write from the viewpoint of a male because I'm a male and think about addressing a lot of their particular issues. Uh, but it then tends to bleed over into female, and it tends to also bleed in terms of age. In other words, my, say, primary demographic, my core audience, is very heavily weighted to, say, between 25 and 45, maybe 25 and 40, very heavily weighted. Folks on the younger side. But I I went to a, uh, I guess it was a cousin's commencement not long ago, and this grandfather came over to me and listens to the podcast. And then I meet high school students who have read my stuff. Uh, so I, I do think it's important to realize whether you're, and I've, I mean, my real financial career is investing in and advising tech startups, right? That's actually where I've kind of uh, pay, the, pay the bills primarily. And it's but, another space where things are very interestingly gendered. Yeah. Well, I would say, yeah. I mean, that's a, we could do I mean, that, hours yeah, we, on that. We could do five more hours. Yeah, this but, is the world's longest podcast. No, no, that's okay. But <laughs> the, but the, the te- where, what I was going to say is the advice that I would give to a tech entrepreneur in many cases is the same advice I would give to an author. And that is your target is not your market. So you need to know, say, who your 1,000 most likely true fans 
will be. And if that's 100% female, that's fine. Like, look at Sophia Amoruso and her podcast. Like, fantastic. Like, she's focusing on women, 100%. And then you have... But she bottomed out with her business. Well, hold on. There are other there are other examples, too. There's, like, Lean In, right? Uh, then you have... Uh, the point I was going to make, though, is that if you target your 1,000 most likely true fans first, that is your target, but it's not your market. In other words, the the sort of uh, challenges and aspirations and issues that you address will be much more universally applicable uh, than otherwise, uh, I think, possible to to reach on a level of detail. But you have to you have to first have in mind who you are writing for. And I think that when everyone is your market, when everyone is your reader, no one is your reader. Yeah. You end up being so plain vanilla that you just, I would rather, I would much rather polarize than to have sort of a, a collective meh response. And so everything that I write, like in, in, in fact, like the, whether it's Tools of Titans or uh, any of these books, um, For Our Chef, I intend it to be a collection of mini books and I expect each mini book within one of these books to only really appeal to about 10% of my audience. And I just want 10% to love it. And if I, if I approach it that way, there should be at least 10 to 20% of the book that each person will end up loving, but I don't expect them to like it all. So the, the whole sort of economy of optimization and life hacking and body hacking at which I think you are one of the centerpieces and one of the largest figures, the audience for that has, as it turned out, turned out to be overwhelmingly male. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a reason that this is something that is a particularly alluring way of viewing the world for a male audience? Uh, you know, this is this is a good question. I I don't have any hard data to support any speculation, but I'll speculate. Yeah, no, uh, I think it. that. I think that it's it's not just a question of male. It's a question of uh, tech-involved or tech-savvy. A lot of the men in my audience are also very familiar with tech, as are the women. But for whatever reason, I don't know if this has to do with hardwiring or upbringing, but they're very analytically driven. And whether it's getting things done or using a million apps for to-do tracking and quantified self. I mean, if you go to, if you look at the quantified self movement, I was at the very first meetup at Kevin Kelly's house in Pacifica, the founding editor of, of Wired Magazine. It's 20 something people. Now it's in dozens of cities around the world. And it's this huge movement. Uh, overwhelmingly, you're going to find, uh, at least to the meetings, that I, in the meetings I've attended, the meetups, it's like 70, 80% male, at least. And dudes just seem to like to try to crunch numbers and pattern match that way. I don't know why that's the case. I really don't. But I mean, this is actually uh, very comparable in some ways to my approach to cooking and why I think it failed in the beginning is I wanted to have like a master spreadsheet that would allow me to do everything perfectly without fail. Right. And my girlfriend <laughs> at the time was just like, no, you're doing this no offense, but like the dumb way, like this is overcomplicated and this is why you're getting overwhelmed. She would, take two types of, of herbs or spices and, and, and uh, roll them in her fingers and say, all right, smell this. Okay. Now smell this. Do those two go together or not? Right. And I could call it. And she's like, and she's like, yeah, like you, your brain already knows how to do this. Uh, so uh, I, I do think 
certainly there could be just hardwiring differences, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly. It does seem, though, particularly in, say, Silicon Valley with guys who are extremely involved in tech. And it could be self, I mean, a selection bias for sure, sure uh, in a lot of ways, but highly, highly analytical. And there are places where that's very helpful and there are places where that just creates overwhelm. So in in all of these books, you you focus on this idea of sort of optimization and... Yeah, optimizing. Depends on what you're optimizing for, for where sure. Where is the room in this, especially when it comes to food, where is the room in this for pleasure and emotion? Well, you can optimize for pleasure and emotion. So in other words, I don't speed read poetry, even though I'm a fast reader. I can do very long meals. I mean, I just had a three or four hour dinner at Hearth a couple days ago, one of my favorite spots here in, in New York City. And uh, I think that what I've realized is that achievement and optimizing for effectiveness and efficiency and so on is what, at best one half of the puzzle. It's, it's the, the forward-focused planning, driving, goal, achieving piece. Yes, that's fine. So you have achievement as one piece, but then the appreciation is the other half or the other 60% if we're looking at self-reported well-being and trying to optimize that. Uh, so... I, I regularly schedule a lot of slack in my system for long walks. I mean, I probably walk, at least when I'm at my home base in San Francisco, I would say two to three hours a day. But you schedule the slack. Like, I where, do schedule the slack. Is, is there I sometimes room in schedule this world the slack. For, for spontaneity or just sort of there's, going with your gut? There's plenty of room for spontaneity, uh, but I do think that you still have to block it out, even on a macro level. So I blocked out... An entire month, I went to Indonesia, and I had no calendar, no phone, no email for a month. Uh, to make that work, though, I do think you have to block it out, whether it's a month long or it's just a two, three-hour walk where you're making, say, phone calls, listening to podcasts, or just walking, listening to nature. If you if it's not on the calendar, it's not real. And the reason I say that is that I would I would surmise that most of the people listening to this podcast are go-getters in some capacity. And work will swell to fill the void. If you don't have these, these uh, personal projects, time with friends, long dinners blocked out, you will end up checking fucking Facebook for three hours and then wonder where your evening went. This is extremely real for me. <laughs> um, so how do these things apply if you're, for example, a chef, right? No. Like a lot of these techniques are things that rely on exploiting inefficiencies in the system to your mm -hmm. advantage. But if you're someone whose work relies on labor or on creativity or on craft, yeah. it can be hard to say, okay, I'm going to block off time for four hours of long walks mm -hmm. in the woods because the demands of my specific restaurant profession, which we could definitely sidebar about the strangeness of the restaurant world <laughs> as a business yeah. entity. But like how... How do you hack your life or optimize your life if it's not one that you have that much inherent control over? I, well, I think it depends a lot on the unique circumstances. Uh, I, I would say first that people underestimate how much leverage your ability to negotiate the reality that they have. And I say that as someone who's by no means a restaurateur, but I, I'm reasonably involved in, in the food world. I mean, I'm an investor in Cezanne in, in San Francisco which along with Bennu is the first you know, three-star 
Michelin restaurant in San Francisco history. Then uh, we have Alt SF and Daniel Patterson. I've spent a ton of time with him. Central Kitchen and that whole crew, as well as Flower and Water. I know those guys, and I'm an investor in their restaurant group. So I have some familiarity, and I've also spent just through the Four Hour Chef a ton of time at uh, places like Alinea and uh, that whole crew. And they've they've really innovated, not just on the food front, but I mean, in, uh, this book was written a few years ago, but on the business front in some really fascinating ways. And uh, Grant Ackett's partner, Nick Konis, came out of, I believe it was options trading. So you have these innovations coming from someone who's entirely separate from food and then infusing it into the culinary scene. And I would say that when I look at people at the the higher ends of the food world, if we're looking at executive chefs who are really trying to create something new or unique, they they are taking that time. Like you look at Noma, like a lot, lot of walks, lots of weird experiments, many of which <laughs> don't work out, some of which do. And it's like, oh, ants. <laughs> who right. knew that ants stuck on a piece of jerky or whatever it is could have such a peculiar taste? And they are trying to, A, I think, create Slack so that they can connect dots that have not been connected before. Even if that Slack is just two hours on the weekend, they're not, no matter how little control you perceive to have over your professional situation, you have two hours somewhere. And secondly, they're looking to borrow from other worlds to test best practices or other practices from outside of cooking and food in that domain. Uh, so, so that would be point one. But certainly a lot of the, the uh, tools in the toolkit from the 4-Hour Workweek and all the books, like the 80-20 principle, I think applies. You know, Pareto's Law applies to almost all of these. Uh, certainly if you're trying to create a financially viable restaurant, which then in turn creates more of the ability to experiment. When, when, you're, when, you're, when you're wondering how the hell you're going to cover next month's rent, well, I mean, you have to start sacrificing in areas. But if you have enough float or enough cash flow, then maybe decide to have a bar on the side, uh, which is a hell of a lot uh, easier from a cash flow perspective than top-end food, from, from what it appears at least. Uh, then I remember hearing at one point that the fat duck at its peak had something like a 1% to 3% profit margin. I mean, it was so slim. And it ends up having to be a loss leader, in effect, for people like Heston. And um, that's a harsh reality. But there, there are many ways to skin the cat. I really want to know where that expression came from. It's so gruesome. But there are many ways to skin the cat. And <laughs> you can start at the head. You can start at the tail. <laughs> start the tail. Um, anyway, I was going to suggest people look at how to skin rabbits. It's actually fascinating. You kind of take them off like a sock. It's really unusual. Anyway, when I was doing my my hunting and foraging for all my food for the four-hour chef, I figured that out. Side note, digression. <laughs> <laughs> for those interested in learning how to skin rabbits, there you, there you have it. That's fantastic. Well, um, Tim, we have arrived at the portion of our episode that we like to call the lightning round. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to invite our associate producer, Dan, to join us. He's going to be our special lightning round question asker. He's got some questions for you. And then I have one to close. Let's do it. So, Dan, welcome to the Eat Upsell. Hi, Tim. Hi there. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm excited. I like lightning. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fast and real, it's bright. Real lightning. Real so lightning. So you, you want like one, one word, yeah, one sentence? Do whatever you want. All right. It's cool. All right. Okay. I'll do what I can. First one. Would you rather be able to move a single sub one pound object at any given time with your mind 
or be able to scale walls like Spider-Man? Move objects. Done? Done, yeah. What objects would you move? Oh, well, sub one pound. I can think of dozens of things I can move around. Yeah, absolutely. Just like for fun. Well, I I could foresee having some type of weird haptic suit that would allow me in virtual reality or otherwise to scale walls in the not too distant future, whereas the telekinesis, I think it would take more time. So I'll take the telekinesis. It says a lot about me that my first thought with that was, oh, I could do so much crime. <laughs> oh, you could do that with telekinesis like, too. Yeah, no, exa- no, exactly. With oh, telekinesis, oh, I'd be like, oh Spider-Man. yeah, like I could just like cut things through TSA or through various <laughs> other. Sec- I'm not a terrorist. Got it. We should edit that out. Okay. <laughs> if you had to, uh, if you had to bathe and shower in a popular soup for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Popular soup. Yeah. Tom Yum soup. It's probably really good for your skin. Yeah, coke, a little coconut milk. It's got some acids, like yeah, natural Yeah, got some acid. I feel like I feel like it'd be. It's a good skincare line. Yeah, yeah. Tom Yum, <laughs> soup bath bombs. What does McDonald's look like in 100 years? What does McDonald's look like in 100 years? Uh, <laughs> I keep thinking of Wally, where that one company that makes like the super quadruple gulps is effectively running the planet. Uh, it depends on how they. Uh, I think with their real estate holdings that they'll still be in a decent position. A hundred years from now, maybe they'll have their own country. They'll strike a deal, deal with the Vatican, who's the actual largest landholder in the world as far as I know. A common dating app opener that actually sparked one of my best friend's relationships was fuck, marry, kill, waffle, pancakes, crepes. How would you respond? <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in this was that just Was that just a nonsensical sentence? Wait, can I... Can, yeah, yeah. What I think I so you are on dating apps. No, 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 no. Your well, friend, your friend. For a friend. Okay. friend. You yeah. have a friend who is on dating apps. Yeah. And he used as his opening line. Actually, it was Bumble, so the girl used it as her uh, opening line. I don't know enough about what dating was apps it to understand this. Uh, Fuck Mary Kill. Kill. Waffle pancakes crepes. Have you played this game before? Fuck Mary Kill. Oh yes. Wow. Okay. All right. Playing round fail. Got it. No, 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 no. I have. I was. <laughs> I was hearing it incorrectly. I just thought it was a string of nonsense. <laughs> We're just gonna say uh, some words at you. Tell us what how would you my answer be. First, first, if it were your, if it were your male friend, I'd be like, how did you get him? How did you get on my Bumble? Because I'm not searching for men. Uh, uh, let's see. Fuck, Mary, kill. What were the options again? Um, waffle, pancakes, crepes. Are you, like literally fuck like with your body? I, that's a weird one. That's yeah, a weird one. I think one. it's like which one do you like the best? Which one is? I think I would respond since it's a dating app with yeah. fuck all of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's an aggressive strat. Hey, yeah. if, if, if I'm going to if I'm going to have like a fast ball thrown at my head with that yeah. kind of opener, then I think that's. I think we have the title of this episode. Tim, Tim Ferriss will fuck all your breakfast pastries. <laughs> um, okay, Crazy <laughs> SEO volume for that, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> that's It's the tweet. It's everything. We're done. Okay, wait. More questions, right? Would you rather have 10 minutes of memorable consciousness in the womb or on the moon? Womb. I knew it. Yeah, knew that it. would be super cool. Yeah. Very soothing. Yeah. Nice warm memories. Mm-hmm. Plus, no one's been there, really. To the womb? Well, everyone's been there, but no one really knows. has a has a recollection. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. You could defeat all astronauts at dinner mm-hmm. party conversation, but you think you're cool. <laughs> yeah, check this out. <laughs> you know what that is? <laughs> that was an incredible. Do you practice your like no. like, so, like? I haven't been working in on my heartbeat, heartbeat <laughs> no, impression. No. <laughs> okay, uh, last one. Um, what's your favorite emoji? My favorite emoji. Uh, I think it is the cat with the heart eyes. 
I support that. Why yeah. the cat with the hard eyes rather than the circle with the hard eyes? There's like a subtle <laughs> and important semantic yeah, distinction. Yeah, I don't have a good answer to why. I just really like that emoji. <laughs> I love it. Just, yeah, just does it for me. So I'm going to exercise my right as the host of the podcast and add a final lightning round question, even Let's though it's it. supposed to be Dan's show. So in a lot of ways, you represent this sort of optimal efficiency world. And a thing that you've also talked about a lot is that you got started down this path by thinking about how to do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. So... In a bizarro world, in mm -hmm. an alternate universe, when yep. you are the opposite of Tim and <laughs> okay. you represent anti-optimization, uh -huh. what's your sales pitch for that? Uh, anti-optimization. Uh, my sales pitch for that would be uh, you're not wasting time if you're doing it deliberately. That's a good line. That would be my sales pitch for that, which I happen to believe anyway. <laughs> as long as you're doing it. By choice. Yeah. It's okay that as you're doing it. As long as you're aware you're doing it. It's a deliberate choice. You're not wasting time. Awesome. Well, Tim, thanks for coming by the Eater Upsell. Where can our listeners find you if they have not already found you? Uh, people can find me, I think, best place right now is probably toolsoftitans.com. All sorts of sample chapters forward from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, that's, a, that's a fun spot. And they can find me at fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, would be another another uh, collection of 700 plus blog posts and 200 plus podcast episodes and so on. So I can find everything there. Those would be the two primaries. I would say uh, these days, toolsoftitans.com. Sounds good. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cool. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in New York and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy over there, Greg Morbido. Our producers are Maureen Giannone and Patrick Balder. Our editor and associate producer is Daniel Janine. Our associate editorial producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our studio ops team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Yule. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person involved in the creation of this entire crazy rodeo is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for being exactly who you are. <laughs> <laughs>